This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You've seen the headlines. Artificial intelligence is taking over jobs. There's no question artificial intelligence will remake the workplace. In the coming years, artificial intelligence is probably going to change your life and likely the entire world. Will AI, automation, and robotics replace all the jobs? This is a humanoid robot, which means it looks, it talks, and it even acts, well, like a human. So does that mean it could take a human's job like mine? You better believe it. But as anxieties over automation mount, AI is already driving the employment of an estimated millions of workers globally. From chatbots to text to image generators, AI relies on human workers labeling and annotating the countless images and words it references. And this is a global enterprise. Workers in Kenya to the Philippines to here in the U.S. do the tedious work of clicking through and tagging thousands of images, often for little pay and with little opportunity for growth. It's been described as a labor supply chain. So what do we know about this workforce? And as Congress moves to regulate AI, how are the industry's gig workers being considered? We'll discuss those questions and get into a whole lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Let's start our conversation by welcoming Sarah Roberts. She's a professor of information studies and the director of the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry at the University of California, Los Angeles. Sarah, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Dylan Baker. They're a research engineer at the Distributed AI Research Institute. They worked on the ethical AI team at Google from 2020 to 2022. Dylan, it's great to have you. Hi, it's exciting to be here. Now, Dylan, as an engineer at Google, you were tasked with running some of those data labeling assignments. What does that work look like? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I worked on a team under research that did experimental machine, machine learning projects. Um, and this was when I first started. Um, and one of my jobs was basically helping combine different models together to evaluate their performance, um, which required a lot of like getting a lot of data labeled, um, which was a super, super com- common component of like everybody's work. Um, so an example of what one of these tasks might be 
Um, so like if you wanted to build a model that automatically snaps a picture every time you see two people hugging, you might have like a model that detects people's bodies pretty well and you have 100,000 videos of people. So we'll take all the video clips where we detect two bodies that are close to each other and we'll send it off to, you know, 20 or 30 or 1,000 data labelers and ask them like, are these two people hugging or not? And then you go back and evaluate your model. And we did this for like all sorts of stuff. So you can imagine, you know, like hate speech labeling and all sorts of computer vision. It was it was really across the board. So the AI can't decide on its own what's two bodies hugging unless a human first identifies two bodies hugging and feeds that to the AI. Am I hearing correctly? Yeah, it's usually sort of hand in hand. And so you'll, you know, maybe build a model based on all sorts of other metrics, and then you'll go and send it over to labelers and and check your work. Or you might build a training data set where all that the computer gets is, you know, thousands and thousands of labels from people. But at some point, you need a human in the loop. Well, Josh Jezza is a tech reporter at New York Magazine, and he spoke with dozens of AI data labelers around the globe about the work they do. When a producer, Arfi Getty, talked to Josh about his reporting. It's really unusual work. A lot of it happens on these kind of online gig platforms. And so I signed up for one. It was called Remo Tasks. It's a subsidiary of this larger company called Scale AI. And you don't know much about what you're working on. You, the, the qualifications are basically like you're a human and you speak English uh, and you fill out some basic information and then you get taken to a training center where there's a bunch of kind of cryptically named projects and you do you you click on one and you have to complete a sort of training tutorial before you can work and get paid for doing it. But you click around and you see that they are sort of doing the human work behind a bunch of different automated systems like labeling clothes in photos for uh, e-commerce platforms or kind of doing sort of sentiment analysis on clips of dialogue or videos of people. One of the striking things about those industries, it's incredibly opaque even to people inside it. Like as a worker, a lot of the time you don't know what you're working on because the tasks all have code names. Maybe the platform even has a code name. So you don't know the parent company, the data vendor, much less the customer, like their customer whose AI are training. People in the industry said that's basically because the AI companies, I mean, they don't want people to know what they're working on. And if you see what people, what sort of data they're requesting and how they're giving instructions to the annotators, you can kind of piece together a lot of what's coming down the pipe. But it's also, you know, you're dealing with such huge quantities of people and people that, you know, these companies don't have an ongoing relationship with, you know, people that they're kind of bringing in for a couple of weeks to work and then letting go. And so it's basically impossible to control the flow of information. So you just you just don't give it to the workers. You have code names. You have labor so divided that they don't really know what they're working on. They just know they're like labeling T-shirts or something. Um, they don't really have a sense of the system they're part of. Hey, Sarah, help us better understand how the work of data labelers feeds the final AI product we may be using. Well, in some cases, uh, as Dylan described, uh, workers may be annotating individual pieces of content that could be text-based, it could be video, it could be image. In other cases, uh, they are working towards essentially building a model 
to train the larger model. And so in the case of something like ChatGPT, for instance, which uses a corpus known as a large language model, um, in the case of ChatGPT sourced from the entire internet, it turns out that the entire internet is filled with some things that are not necessarily high quality or something that um, uh, maybe people want to engage with. And so they uh, need an entire workforce to build a model to sort of keep that larger model in line. And uh, in that case, as was reported uh, by Billy Perigo of Time Magazine, the workers are building a model that is essentially a model of toxicity. And so they are engaged with uh, the kind of material that is to be culled out of the larger product, which means that's what they're dealing with for the entirety of their jobs. And just like content moderation and commercial content moderation of social media, which happens after the fact, once content has been uploaded, uh, these workers who are doing this kind of model vetting on the front end are essentially, in my opinion, an expansion of that kind of human workforce that goes to fuel uh, these supposedly entirely computational uh, kinds of interventions in general. So what we're seeing is an expansion, not a lessening of human intervention, not a lessening of human needs uh, for these kinds of jobs, but a, a great expansion of it exponentially. Dylan, where do AI firms find these workers? It really, really depends. I know some places there are, you know, open calls. Sometimes it's, you know, the platforms themselves advertise like, you know, work online, work from anywhere, um, you know, work five minutes a day and make some extra cash. Um, and sometimes people will, you know, uh, look for workers basically as a full-time job. And so people will be all in one office doing this kind of work, you know, eight hours a day and will be trained on premises. So it, it really, really varies. Sarah, this is a global workforce. As we said, AI firms have annotators working in, in Kenya, the Philippines and parts of Europe. Why are they or are they targeting certain areas to do these work to do this work? Well, they are targeting certain areas and uh, it's it's really not by happenstance. If we look at the larger global picture of this kind of labor flow, we will see that, for example, uh, companies in the United States whose main output is in American English might go to the Philippines not just because the Philippines has a large young workforce, but because the Philippines has a population that is intimately familiar with the United States and American English. This predicated on a relationship of colonialism of over a hundred years. So in fact, in many of these types of relationships where firms are looking to outsource this human labor behind their computational tools, we are seeing uh, these believed to have been uh, eliminated relationships of colonialism sort of resurfacing. In, in some cases, for example, that of France will see the labor go to North Africa and so on. And so um, there are some deep and profound inequities that are inherent in those relationships. And this kind of work exacerbates it. It turns out that tech companies don't really want to pay a lot for this labor. And so they chase uh, the, the sort of lowest bid for these types of contracts when they're outsourced. Dylan, in your data labeling role at Google, how much did you know about the workers who you were creating tasks for? 
Oh, very little. Um, and, you know, this isn't universal, but it's it's definitely the norm. Um, you know, I knew approximately where they were in the world, but I had very minimal contact. My contact was very much like mediated through managers and through like third parties. And um, it wasn't the norm to even collect any data about the labelers for my tasks. And so I knew nothing about their background, um, which is super weird because these are ultimately like the experts in our data. Sometimes they're the source of our data. When people are, you know, uploading photos of themselves or being asked to, you know, chat with a chatbot all day, um, it's their content that's that's feeding these systems. Um, and that opacity also goes both ways. Oftentimes, um, almost universally, they they never know anything about us. Sarah, we're talking about this workforce, and I'm curious how reliable this work is for for these people who are feeding the AI engines. As Dylan mentioned before, it. It it tends to be uh, it it tends to be re- really uh, a, a sort of a fly by night workforce. There's not a lot of commitment on either end for either party from either the company that's requesting the practice or the companies that employ people to do this work. It can be uh, sort of a, a fixed period of time or a fixed project, and then folks are back on the job market. The other issue with this type of work is that there's sort of two poles to it. One is total tedium and and kind of rote activity to the point of mind-numbing boredom. And on the other end, it can be confronting some of the worst expressions of humanity that you can see. And vacillating between those two poles is incredibly emotionally and psychologically challenging. So it can be the case that people find that uh, their commitment to uh, staying in this type of work on the long term just isn't feasible for them psychologically. Uh, this this gives us a result of a of a transitory workforce, a workforce that um, is predicated on on something of a revolving door, and uh, folks leave this work uh, often in a worse state than when they started. And it it tends to chew people up and spit them out, which is why we're seeing people who have done this type of work beginning to organize and uh, resist the conditions they're working in. Dylan, give us a sense of, of the types of images people might see when they're doing this annotation work. I mean, it, it truly varies. Um, I mean, things that I've I've seen or heard about, it'll be, you know, again, as Sarah said, like really mundane, you know, videos of people standing around their kitchen or, you know, security camera where you might not see a lot. Um, but I've also heard uh, one of our fellows, Crystal Kaufman, who organizes with Turcopticon was talking about um, seeing information of like, you know, videos and images of border crossings, or, you know, sometimes these can be really graphic or explicit images, especially in content moderation or online toxicity modeling, you can end up with stuff that is, you know, really, really graphic and really horrible and that, you know, the content moderators and, and data labelers are almost like a buffer um, to this content going more public. We're discussing human labor and AI. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. 
Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Maiden cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Maiden, Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's get back to our conversation with this message we got from a member of the 1A Text Club. I've tried gathering information from AI for an article, and it actually made up some facts, giving the date and location for an event that never happened anywhere. And I also want to note that in 2018, a woman in Arizona was killed after she was hit by a self-driving Uber. The Uber was programmed to avoid pedestrians and cyclists, but it didn't know how to interpret uh, someone who was walking with a bike across the street. And this was called, quote, an edge case. But Sarah, what do cases like that say about the reliability of AI systems? Well, we're at a point right now where our chatbot AI indeed can produce incredible results with great authority and be completely false. So I've experienced that myself. I I thought I would test out ChatGPT in one of its earlier iterations, and I, I decided to base some questions on my own area of expertise so I could evaluate it. And it gave me back uh, some top citations in my field of research. The first one was the book by a colleague, which I thought, oh, that's great that that's included. The next few things that came out were recent publications, and I thought, I haven't seen these. Maybe I missed them during COVID. I got to catch up on my reading. I'm behind. And then as I continued to kind of scroll down in the results, I realized that the chatbot was producing very legitimate sounding titles with um, names of scholars I knew who didn't necessarily work in that area, but could, and uh, giving me uh, real journal articles down to page numbers. So I took me a minute as an expert to realize that I was being totally lied to. I guess that was my fault. I didn't ask the chatbot to give me true or actual or factual information. I asked it just to generate a list. And that's the kind of uh, issue that I can see for many people who are using these tools who don't necessarily have deep expertise. It speaks with great authority. It seems legitimate. And yet um, I had a list of totally bogus publications that I could have slipped into a paper and who would have been the wiser? So Dylan, why is it then important to understand the human labor that goes into operating these AI engines? Because like Sarah said, if people use these tools and they speak with great authority, it's not because it's <laughs> it's more intelligent. It's being fed by human beings who, I mean, let's be honest, we're, we're fallible. I mean, exactly. I think 
I think that's one of the core issues is that this is a question, you know, models are built on data. That's really all they are is they're just amplifying and, and sort of making statistical models. But underneath all of that is, is our data. And if we want to understand what these models are doing, fundamentally, we need to understand where all this data came from, how it was shaped. Um, and, and underneath all of that is really the data labelers' experiences and perspectives and, and what it is they're optimizing for. Um, like one of my colleagues, Mila Maselli, um, has studied and, and seen that the power dynamics in the workplace um, that a lot of these workers are dealing with fundamentally shape the kinds of data that they um, that they produce. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that we have almost no insight into. And, and when we don't know where this is coming from, we can't really... Uh, understand what our models are going to produce. Is this this sort of gig labor model unique to AI products, or do we see it in other parts of the tech industry, Dylan? It's, I mean, it's definitely not unique to AI. It's, it's not even really unique to tech. It's something that we see all over. Um, technology has definitely shaped how these issues have played out and and made some things more prominent and brought a lot more things to the sort of public consciousness. But fundamentally, I think these are labor issues that, I mean, as Sarah said, are hundreds of years in the making. Um, this echoes a lot of other issues that we see across the board. Another member of the 1A Text Club wrote us, my confidence in AI is low. The development is happening all too quickly and the misuse of it honestly is beyond belief. It becomes frightening. Uh, you know, Sarah, it's, it's interesting when you hear the conversations around AI and labor, it's about the way AI may make some jobs obsolete or or easier, uh, particularly with the emergence of services like ChatGPT, and we'll hear more about that a little later in the hour. But at the same time, we've got this massive workforce holding up the basic functions of these systems, and it's a workforce we really don't talk about. <laughs> How do we make sense of, of that tension? Well, I think one thing that we really need to do is is um, separate some of the hype, which includes the doomsday scenario uh, speech uh, and and kind of fear mongering from the actual more mundane but nonetheless disturbing shifts that are happening economically and in the labor force around AI. And the question when it comes to the tech industry in particular is. Who benefits when there is a continual denial of the necessity for human beings and their input and their discernment to build these tools on the front end and to evaluate them in the role of content moderation on the back end, all of which is labor that is rendered opaque, that is outsourced and put in other parts of the globe, out of sight, out of mind, and all goes to to driving down uh, quite literally, the value of that kind of work. There's only a few people who are going to benefit under that model. And it's not it's not the massive pools of individuals who are required to go and do this type of work on behalf of these firms. So where I always go with the with these kinds of questions around uh, around the impact of these tools is is really about not necessarily the elimination of jobs, but maybe even the creation of new jobs that are rendered uh, low value, low status, insecure, lacking benefits, and putting workers in precarious uh, job settings where their mental health may very well be on the line, all to the benefit of doing what? Imitating 
what humans can already do. So this is where we have to kind of separate the hype from from the reality and what the real impact is. And what I see AI doing in so far as disruption is just another mechanism for uh, the ownership class really to devalue human labor writ large. I mean, Dylan, I'm curious to hear from you what conversations you've heard big tech companies having about the value of data labelers and annotators, if they're having those conversations at all. Well, it's interesting because I think on on one side, the big companies definitely know that this is foundational. I mean, I like guarantee that it is a significant line item in every single budget um, and has for many, many years before people were you know talking about this in the mainstream. Um, but I think there's also, they really benefit from making as much of this work invisible, um, not only publicly, but even sort of within their own companies um, and keeping this really clear dividing line between like, quote unquote, skilled and unskilled labor, um, which means really minimizing that role and dehumanizing the workers so they can continue to sort of keep people in these, you know, precarious, uh, precarious positions where there are very few labor benefits. Um, and that being said, like these conversations have been having, like have been, has been happening, um, you know, for for many many years, I mean, people were publishing about these kinds of issues as early as like 2011, and you know, ghost work came out in 2019, and there have been you know a lot of researchers doing this kind of work. Um, some of it more on the sort of labor ethics side, some of it more on the sort of you know how do we how do we wrangle workers to get you know the quote unquote like best ground truth. So it's it's across the board, but they've been happening in different places. Uh, is there an opportunity for this labor force to? move beyond gig work and have some security or even the potential for for growth, Dylan? I mean, I think that's often what they're sort of being pitched and sold. Um, a lot of these a lot of these companies will say, oh, we're helping people upskill. We're helping people who otherwise wouldn't have access to, you know, remote work. Remote work. Um, you know, we're targeting refugee populations. Um, but again, as, as our fellow Crystal, who's worked as a, as a Turk, uh, mechanical Turk labeler for many, many years, uh, she mentioned, you know, that almost never materializes for people. This is almost always hype and, and marketing. Um, and really sort of what's happening is is labor exploitation. And these are, you know, reinforcing, again, hundreds of years old colonial power dynamics. Sarah, you've spent most of your career researching content moderation. What parallels do you see between this type of labor as it's used in AI as compared to content moderation? Well, I've long considered... Uh the growth of data labeling and other kinds of uh, processing of, of large data sets and corpora as content moderation before the fact. So uh, the, the, the goal of the tech industry uh, leadership, at least, is to always rely upon computation as the first order of problem solving. But unfortunately for that goal, massive amounts of human intelligence and input is required. And that comes in the form of this kind of uh, discernment work. And for many years, it was predicted by people who felt that I was uh, raising the alarm around the conditions and and worker exploitation in the content moderation industry, that uh, if I would just hold on, computers would come in and save the day and take over uh, the majority of, of content moderation activity. I knew that was totally false, if for no other reason than developing computation to do the kinds of 
sophisticated content moderation that humans do was just too expensive. In other words, the companies did the math and they found it was cheaper to hire people uh, over and over again as they sort of burned out and moved out of those jobs. They just go and hire more people. And they knew that was cheaper than pouring money into the engineering resources that it would require to even begin to uh, kind of eliminate that workforce. And in fact, the very thing that I predicted has occurred, which is that this kind of discernment work of which content moderation is a part has now totally expanded to include data labelers and other people who are working on inputting and vetting these models before we as users ever get to them. Uh, so in, in effect, it's just increased exponentially the amount of people who are involved, but invo involved in a hidden way because they are the needed human beings that put lie to the claim that computers can do it all and they can do it all without human input. I mean, what's a computer without a human at the end of the day? It's just a, it's just a box. Well, members of Congress are making moves to regulate AI. Sarah, briefly, how is the regulatory environment starting to take shape? I wish I could tell you that I had a lot of faith in our, uh, in our national leaders and Congress around these issues. But for the past years, uh, the will to regulate the tech industry in general has been very low. We've seen many, many... Uh, congressional hearings around issues over the past few years, all of which have been gravely disappointing all the way to disturbing. It seems like our Congress members don't have a grasp of the basic facts around how these uh, tools work. And they're swayed and persuaded in many cases by the tech CEOs and general counsel who are trotted in front of them. So, uh, AI is causing an alarm, but again, I feel in many regards that the aim is off. Um, if, if we're always looking over at the technology piece, we're missing the forest for the trees. We're not looking at things like human labor exploitation. Well, Dylan, to your mind, what needs to change to create more protections and opportunities for data labelers? I mean, I think having these conversations is really critical because I ultimately think that we need to be valuing and, and recognizing this work as a fundamental component of AI systems that I think will continue to be a core component sort of indefinitely. Um, and I think we need to see it in the bigger picture of labor rights in the U.S. So this is labor organization and legislation. That's Dylan Baker. They're a research engineer at the Distributed AI Research Institute. They worked on the ethical AI team at Google from 2020 to 2022. Also with us, Sarah Roberts. She's a professor of information studies and the director of the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dylan, Sarah, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White, and we'll talk more soon. This is What A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. 
Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.